Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Put your hands together and welcome our brother Benjamin Camp as he comes on this morning. Well, thank you. Your, your pastor is one of my friends. Uh, George Herbert, the poet, said, I count my friends to be those who pray for me. That's why I count John to be one of my friends. I know he prays for me, and I pray for him. I love John. I love him and his heart for you. I know a few people that have a, an earnest desire, a longing, an imagination to see Christ formed among his people quite like John. He longs for that for you. That's a good pastor. Become a member. It's important. <laughs> well, with that, um, I'm going to invite you to turn in Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Regardless of what kind of uh, knowledge of the Bible you have, this is a familiar passage. It's, the, it's the, the story of the Good Samaritan. And so what I want to do is I want to look at a familiar text with a fresh fidelity. A faithfulness to it that is fresh, that looks at it in a new way for our current moment. And so if you would get to Luke chapter 10, I'm going to read this text here in a moment, and then we're going to walk through it verse by verse. But first, let me pray for us. Father God, you spoke your Son, the Word, by your Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, would you this morning open our eyes to see Jesus? We wish to see Jesus, and that we would do that to the glory of the Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You, go and do likewise. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, what I want to do is I want to look at this text uh, really under one main point. That one main point is this, that to love your neighbor, you must see clearly, feel deeply, and give freely. To love your neighbor, you must see clearly, feel deeply, and give freely. And we're going to look at that under two headings. I'm breaking the text into two headings, and that is first the setup and then the story. The setup and then the story. If you would, look with me at verse 25. Verse 25. It says, and behold, a lawyer. Now, when you hear lawyer in the Bible, don't think law and order. Think Bible scholar, seminary professor, theologian. That's what you got to have come into your mind. So, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's important to note that the question here is not about a way of life, but the way to life. The way to life. And he asks, what shall I do? You see, the lawyer's view of life is that God helps those who help themselves. The lawyer actually, he views the kingdom of God as a meritocracy. In other words, for him, it's about grit, what I can get, not about grace, what only God can give. Here's a fundamental problem. And so Jesus replies in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And for, for Just so you know, when he says law there, he means most likely the entire Old Testament, the Bible of Jesus' times. It's important to notice that, that Jesus always has a higher view of Scripture than you and I do. He never degrades or denigrates the Bible. He doesn't do this nonsense where it's like, I love Jesus, but, I don't, but not the Bible, you know. You don't know Jesus without the Bible. And he knows this. And so Jesus' response is, hey, how do you read the Bible? You tell me that. Because he knows the only place that has the authority to answer a question like the, the lawyers here is God's holy word. And so he points him to the scriptures. And then the lawyer responds. Um, but it's important to hear. He says, how do you read it? So it's not enough to have the Bible as an authority. There's a way you have to read the Bible to where it functions as an authority that you sit under it, you have to come under it, stand under it in order to understand it. And Jesus knows this. So he's saying, how do you read the Bible? And he's not looking for a literacy lesson here. He's trying to get the heart of his hermeneutics. What is at the heart of how he reads the Bible? And the lawyer answers in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. And he goes on, he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19. So the, the response of Jesus really matters here. He says in verse 28, you've answered correctly. Like Jesus rarely says that to people. He's almost always asking them questions to show how they're just blowing it, basically. But he says, you got it right, you passed the test, lawyer, you're a good Bible scholar. That's remarkable. So what that means is, unless you're reading the scriptures, your reading of the Bible produces in you a double love for God and neighbor, you're not reading it right. That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us a, a twin lens through which to read the Bible. It's all to build you up into the love of God and neighbor, according to Jesus. But that's not all he says. He says in verse 27, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Now, notice Jesus did not say, do this and you will inherit eternal life. He says, do this and you will live. He's actually changing the question in his answer. 
And he's alluding to Leviticus 18.5, which says, if a person does the law, he shall live by it. This is what Jesus is getting at. Do you ever notice that there's parts of you that are deadened? That there's places of your own heart that are kind of numb and shut down, maybe exhausted. But Jesus is saying, hey, if you, if you want to live fully alive, give yourself to the love of God with all of yourself and to your neighbor as yourself. That's Jesus' vision of the good life, if you will. Last time I was here in March, I, I, I shared that um, I'm a full-time pastor and my side hustle is I'm a psychotherapist. I help people with trauma and addiction and depression, anxiety, those kind of things. And in my field, one of the most important things you can do is define mental health. Because apparently that's what I'm trying to move people towards, right? My definition of mental health comes from Jesus right here. What it means to be mentally well, what it means to be spiritually whole, what it means to live the good life is to love God with all of yourself and your neighbor as yourself. That is human flourishing in its highest. That's why Jesus says, do this and you will live fully alive. He's inviting you into human flourishing right here. So hear it that way. But notice that the answer, the response of the lawyer is, is significant. Because even the lawyer knows that this is easier said than done. Loving God with all of ourselves, our neighbor as ourselves. Because when you start with the question, what shall I do? The very next question is, have I done enough? Let's just bring this down home. Am I rich enough? Am I successful enough? Am I cute enough? Am I smart enough? Am I enough? Those questions run through our hearts and minds on the daily. Because when you ask, what shall I do, you got to ask, have I done enough? And so this is the heart of the lawyer's next question. Verse 29, he says this, but he, desiring to justify himself, in other words, wanting to prove that he's enough, that he's done enough, that he is enough, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, the lawyer had the right answer. He answered correctly. Jesus himself said so. But what about his life? Does his life live up to his doctrine? The lawyer asks, what shall I do? Because he's trying to excuse what he has done, or rather what he's not done. And so Jesus puts the question back to the lawyer to show him that his problem is not ignorance, it's disobedience. The lawyer answered correctly. He just doesn't live in light of his own answers. And, and so the, the issue here is not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of love. Um, in the 12th century, there was a man named Bernard of Clairvaux, and, and he said um, that, that the way in which knowledge actually functions to help us rather than to harm us is if it's cooked on the fires of love. And he's saying in the same way, if you eat, 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 and don't digest what you've eaten, you will get indigestion. He's saying if we just stoke our, or stock our minds with knowledge, but we don't digest it on the fires of love, cook it on the fires of love, and work it out into every area of our life, it's actually going to harm us, not help us. And so some of us have orthodoxy, but we don't have orthopraxy. We know what is right, but we don't do what is right. That's the lawyer's problem in our text this morning. And so see, the lawyer asks this question, who am I responsible for because he wants to dodge the claim of love? Who am I responsible for? Who should I look out for? Who is my neighbor after all? You see, because 
The lawyer was good to his people. He was good to his tribe. He was good to his race. But in his time, the the way in which they defined neighbor, it actually didn't extend beyond his tribe, his people, his race. So neighbor was fellow Jew, but it was not Gentile. It was not non-Jew. In fact, those are non-neighbors. And so, listen, religious people have always been trying to redefine neighbor in order to exclude the other that they don't want to love. That's not a new problem. And so when we look at the text, we see that um, he's trying to ask, how can I define neighbor in such a way so I don't have to love the people I don't really want to love? In their day and age, there was such a deep bias against Gentiles, non-Jews, that they thought it was wrong to help a Gentile woman in childbirth because you'd just be helping another Gentile come into the world. You talk about deeply felt hatred, bias towards the other. And so listen, beneath his desire to exclude responsibility is he wants to make some people non-neighbors. It's a sad thing that religious people have been manipulating this book for millennia to do that, to marginalize whoever they want to. And so when we look at the text, we're, we're cued to the fact that whenever neighbor is redefined to confine it to my people, my tribe, my group, my race, injustice follows. It's a tragic thing. Brothers and sisters, we know the tragedy of what this is like when church people exclude the other because they don't define them as neighbor. But we, the church, have always had her call to stand for the inherent dignity and value and worth of every human being that bears the image of God. We have always been called to fight against this redefining of neighbor by taking up what MLK called the creative weapon of love. And we fight back against this dehumanizing tendency in every human heart. And that's what the lawyer's trying to do here. And so let's look at how Jesus responds to his question, who is my neighbor? In typical Jesus fashion, he tells a story. Let's look at the story in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, um, a, a professor of mine said, hey, there's theology in the geography. When you read the scriptures, you've got to get a, a picture of what does it mean to go from Jerusalem to Jericho? What's this Jericho road like? Well, when I was in college here at UCF, I, um, I was a, a substitute teacher for Orange County Public Schools. And at this point, I, believe it or not, did not have a smartphone. It was before that day and age. And, well, I was, I was also a late adopter. So um, I would get up in the morning. I would find a, um, a job somewhere at a, at a local public school. And, and listen, they paid more if you went to the lower income and the harder neighborhoods. I, for one, felt a calling there. And so I was like, you can pay me more or less. I don't care. That's where I want to go anyways. And so I, at the time, also rode a motorcycle. So what I'd do is I'd get up early in the morning. I'd find one of these schools. I would memorize the Google Maps using like a little Mind Palace deal, memory mnemonic thing. And then I'd get on my motorcycle, and I would just go. And high schools don't start until like 6.37 a.m., and so it was still dark, and I'm riding through less than desirable neighborhoods, and, and I'm sitting at traffic lights, and you feel a little bit more vulnerable on a motorcycle than in a car. And so sometimes I would just be kind of looking over my shoulders, hands on the clutch, ready to pop it and get out as soon as I had to if somebody tried to roll up on me. <laughs> Listen, 
That is nothing compared to how sketchy the Jericho Road was. In the 5th century, Jerome, one of the church fathers, tells us that it was called the bloody way. Like if you walk the Jericho Road by yourself, you're asking for trouble, as they say. Why does that matter? Because this man ought to have known better. He ought to have known better. In fact, he was maybe even being reckless that he was walking the Jericho Road all by himself. That's significant, because look at verse 30. It says, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I don't want to be, I don't want to be cold-hearted, but what did you think was going to happen? That's the Jericho Road for you. And so he's beaten and left half dead. It's almost as if he were more responsible. He wouldn't be left there. I'm saying this because sometimes we can, we can think as if, hey, if people just weren't so irresponsible, if they just worked harder, if they just pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, they wouldn't be in need of mercy. That's not how Jesus thinks about it. He's telling a story and you're immediately supposed to think, this fool walked the Jericho Road by himself. He got what he deserved. He should have seen this coming. But that's not how mercy works. Let's continue looking at the text. In fact, it says at the end of verse 30 that he's half dead. Every word matters in Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit does not waste his breath. So when we see half dead, it helps us understand verse 31. It says, now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A priest and a Levite, they're both religious leaders. So what that means is they knew their Bible. They would have known Numbers 19.11, which says, whoever touches the dead body of another person shall be unclean seven days. So when the Spirit, when Jesus tells us he's, he, he is half dead, you've you got to hear, hey, he looks dead. Anybody that saw this dude laying on the side of the road thinks that's a dead body, that's a corpse. So of course the priest bypasses because he knows that if, if he touches this man, he will be unclean for a week. Like, it's kind of like COVID exposure, right? You're like, your friend's like, hey, you want to come over? We were exposed like a week ago, but we're cool, no symptoms. You're like, no, I don't want to be out of work for a week and a half. <laughs> right? This, this is kind of what the priest is doing here. The priest is like, hey, I'm not going to touch this guy. He's conflicted. Either way, he stays and, and, and if he steps away from the man, then he remains ceremonially clean, and he could do his job. He's a priest. But if he moves towards, gets close enough to help a man in need, he'll become unclean. Why does this matter? Because he's choosing the claims of ceremony over the claims of charity. What he's doing right here is he believed that God cared more about his ritual purity than human dignity. Again, religious people are not exempt from this. Jesus' harshest words are towards the religious of his day. The people that were the good guys. Because he knew that there was a, a temptation. Look at the Levites not any better. Now we don't know about the Levite. He might have been in a hurry. He might have been afraid, hey, the robbers could still be nearby. In fact, if I slow down, I might get jumped just like he did. We don't know what's going on with the Levite. But the point is, is that religiosity and hurry and anxiety have prevented all of us from loving people at certain times. Just like it did here in the text. And so it's important to notice that, that both of them, they saw and then they moved away. They saw the man lying half dead and they moved away. We're going to come back to that because it's important. 
Now, the lawyer's hearing Jesus, and he's probably thinking, okay, Jesus, cool. So it's not a priest. It's not a Levite. Like, who's next? Who's coming down the road next? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a Pharisee. Maybe it's a, a good old Jewish layman. Maybe it's a lawyer like myself. I wouldn't mind if I was the hero of the story. And then what does Jesus say in verse 33? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You cannot imagine the outrage that Jesus would have a Samaritan as the hero of this story. It's, it's truly outrageous. Not a Samaritan. The, the trash of the world. The mudblood. The mixed race. The infidel. We have God-given reasons to despise this people. That's what the lawyer is probably thinking. Like if Jesus said this in 2021, he'd be canceled for it. You cannot say this, Jesus. What are you thinking? This is, it's devastating. It's the kind of thing that gets a guy killed. And he says it anyways. Because notice the contrast. The priest saw and stepped away. The Levite saw and stepped away. The Samaritan saw and he was moved with compassion from the inside out and he stepped toward the man in his need. You see, the reason why is because to love your neighbor, you must see clearly. You must see clearly. Um, one of the things Jesus criticizes the religious leaders for all the time, his opponents, is for their blindness. Only a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 7, there's this story where Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house named Simon. And at dinner, this less than tasteful woman comes in and starts washing his feet with her tears. And do you remember what the rebuke was? Simon the Pharisee is just like undone by this. He's like, if you were a prophet, you'd know what kind of woman this was, and you wouldn't let her touch you. Do you remember how Jesus rebuked him? He said, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Because Jesus knows that seeing is where it all begins. Can you actually see her clearly? If you would look for a moment and see this woman, you would see what she's done for me is beautiful. It's more than you've done for me. You see, self-justifying people are always blinded because they bypass the plank in their own eye to do some speck removal in their neighbor's eye. That's what happens when we have self-righteousness. Listen, it's not your lived experience that frees you to see other clearly. It's humility. Can you humble yourself? It doesn't matter who you are, there's nothing as blinding as self-righteousness. A sense of, I've got it all together. A sense of, I've got, you know, maybe this little tiny log in my eye, but let me try to get after that speck for you. And so Jesus is, is showing us that this desire to justify ourselves is a live temptation for all humans. For all of us. Now, the command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you were to double-click on that word as, I want to argue that you'd find the word empathy there. How do I know how to love my neighbor? Well, I have to love them as I would want to be loved. Jesus flips this on its head in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 12, when he says, whatever you wish others would do to you, take the initiative and do it for them. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that requires some empathy. It requires this ability to see clearly. And so the followers of Jesus are those who see with compassion what others carry rather than standing over them in judgment at how they carry it. 
That's what the followers of Jesus do. And it says in verse 33, when he saw him, he had compassion. Psychologists call this attunement. It's one of the most important things in relationships, in parenting, in marriage. Can you see into another's heart and actually feel what they're feeling? In such a way that they feel felt by you. It's called attunement. If, I was, if y'all were watching me like hammering a nail and I just missed the nail head and hit my thumb and I went, ah, in pain, some of you would cringe, right? You'd feel that with me. That's attunement. It's what happens when you see and then you feel. It's the foundation of human relationships. That's what Jesus means when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Can you see clearly? And so to love your neighbor, you don't just need to see clearly, but you have to feel deeply. That seeing ends up moving you with compassion. But the problem is is that if we try to justify, justify ourselves like the lawyer, we won't feel compassion for others in need. The reason why is because at best we'll feel a self, a kind of a smug sense of self-satisfaction. Uh, we'll, we'll have a savior complex. Like, oh yeah, I'll come along and help you out, you low and dirty person. Look at me, I've got it all together. That's what self-justifying does. Or, or there's a sense of I'm not as bad off as that person, therefore I can give them a hand out. Or, at worst, we feel contempt when we see people in need because it reminds us of our own neediness. I was talking with some people this week about how insane some of the things that people say to you when you're suffering and hurt and broken, and they say just the dumbest things in those settings. Most of the time, it's because those people can't handle their own anxiety over what's going on with you. So they just rush to fill the silence with words, and it's usually not helpful, right? And so what's happening here is Jesus is saying, hey, we see clearly, but then we, we feel deeply with them. It's okay to suffer with them. That's what compassion means. It's to suffer with another. And so the Samaritan alone will touch this man because he knows what it's like to be untouchable. The Samaritan knows what it's like to be untouchable, and so he moves towards him in compassion and touches the man. He has compassion and mercy for those in need because he knows his need for mercy. Now, one of the values here at the outpouring is compassion. That y'all would be a compassionate congregation. Let me just use your words to show you how biblical they are. We care about people, period. If God loved us enough to see us in need and do something about it, then we have the same responsibility to the people we encounter in and outside of the church. We firmly believe that God's gospel is one of word and deed. Therefore, we are called to not only verbally address people's brokenness, but we are called to do something about it. That's the kind of thing a Jesus-y church would have as a value. <laughs> like, I just love that. And, and, and you could just derive that straight from this text that we're looking at this morning. Now you know that your values are biblical. <laughs> Pastor John didn't just think these up. They come from the text of Scripture. And so to love your neighbor, you must see clearly, feel deeply, and give freely. Look at how the Samaritan puts on a clinic in compassion. A master class, if you will. Look at verse 34. The Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil. At that day and age, that was, a, that was something to ease the pain. You'd pour oil on the wounds to ease the pain. And he poured on wine to clean the, the wounds. Alcohol is a disinfectant. Verse 34, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
You see, the wounded man was too weak to walk, so the Samaritan set him on his own animal, which means he himself had to walk. Love is always substitutionary. It's always, I exchange me for you. That's how love works. Whether you're changing a diaper for your spouse so they don't have to do it, and you're getting up off the couch so you have to do it, love is substitutionary. Or if you're taking somebody's place and, and, and bearing the weight of what they deserve so that they can be freed from it, that's substitutionary love. That's what the Samaritan does here. He didn't just drop him off at the inn, but it says that he stayed overnight and took care of him. That's extravagant. That's extravagant. Look at verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, according to an ancient historian, you could stay at an inn at this day and age in Italy for a fraction of a denarius per day. Okay, this matters. Because if the rates were at all comparable from Italy to the ancient Near East, then what this means is the Samaritan was paying for about two months of room and board. Two months. Could you imagine if somebody came to you and they were in need and they didn't have a place to go and you're like, hey, listen, you can stay with me for a couple months. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to house you. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to give you everything you need. Or even better, could you imagine paying their rent and giving them a gross, uh, 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 I love that. <laughs> Somebody's like, hey, I'll take it. If anybody, <laughs> you imagine paying their rent for two months and giving them a grocery stipend. That's the kind of compassion the Samaritan has here. It truly is extravagant generosity. It's unbelievable. And if that wasn't enough, the Samaritan wrote a blank check to cover any other costs. So it's just, it's, it's doing all that and then giving a blank check, signing the bottom, saying, hey, whatever else you need, I'll cover it when I get back. That's what the Samaritan does in our text. You could summarize the love of the Samaritan with three words from the text. He saw, he had compassion, and he gave. You see, what I'm saying is that to love our neighbors, we have to see clearly, we have to feel deeply, and we have to give Freely. That's what the text is teaching us. And the Samaritan shows that he loved without prejudice and without price. He loved without prejudice and without price. So Jesus asks the lawyer after he gets done with this story in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Look at the lawyer. He can't even say the, this disgusting word, Samaritan. So he says, the one who showed him mercy. He won't even let that word be found on his lips. So much disdain and disgust. But remember I started off by saying, I wanted to look at a familiar text with fresh fidelity. I want to give you some new eyes to see this. And, and really we see this in the question that Jesus asked when he says, which of these proved to be a neighbor? you got to see what Jesus is doing here. Because this question is a clue to understanding the whole story. Here's the question. Who does Jesus want the lawyer to identify with in the story? Most of us probably think the Good Samaritan. Most of us have probably heard this text and we think, oh, he wants him to be more merciful like the Good Samaritan. And, and, and listen, Jesus ends the whole text by saying, you go and do likewise, right? So, so I get it. That's not a bad interpretation. It's just not the right one at first. There's some movement Jesus wants to happen here. Listen, he asks, 
which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Whose perspective is he trying to get the lawyers, the lawyer to take? Who explicitly does he want him to identify with this in this? The half-dead man. He wants the lawyer to get a sense of, hey, I'm not saying try to be a hero like the Good Samaritan, because guess what? If he went off and did that, it wouldn't deal with his desire to justify himself. Because he would either, either succeed and become more arrogant and proud, or he would fail and he would slip into despair and discouragement. And so Jesus is trying to love the lawyer here by saying, hey, I want you to identify first with the man who's beaten, mocked, abused, and left half dead. When you get into his world, when you put yourself in his shoes, then you can actually understand how this story works. Because only then, when, this, when the lawyer can see himself as utterly helpless, utterly in need, so destitute that he needs the mercy of a Samaritan, only then will the root of self-justification be cut. Only then. And so Jesus wants this for you and for me this morning. He wants us to identify with the beaten, the broken, the helpless one, and be humbled by it. And so it's not first about being loving like the Good Samaritan. It's first about being loved by the Good Samaritan that he wants for you and for me and for the lawyer. And so who is the Good Samaritan then? Well, I want to argue that Luke intends for us to think that the Good Samaritan in this story is none other than Jesus himself. Here's why. Later, a few chapters later in Luke 18, there's another story. And what's happening in this story is Jesus is on the Jericho road. He's walking from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is a reversal of the story he told. He's going from Jericho to Jerusalem, and there's a man who everyone is passing by who's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus sees, and he has compassion, and he has mercy on the man. This happens only a few chapters later. It's eerily similar to the story of the Good Samaritan. Not only that, but in Luke's gospel, the only people who see and have compassion are either God the Father or Jesus himself. Nobody else sees and has compassion except for God and Jesus and the Good Samaritan, who I'm arguing is supposed to be read as Jesus. The third and final one I want to see is that if, if you're reading through the Gospels, underline every time it says Jesus saw and had compassion, and you will, it will blow your mind. I've, I've kind of given you the answer, but if you were just to guess what emotion does Jesus show most commonly in the Gospels, I wonder what you'd say. Like, it, it says a lot about who you understand Jesus to be, because some of us might say anger. Like, he's just pissed. He's ready to flip a table at you know, hairpin trigger kind of thing. Some of you might say it's grief. You know, you, you know, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He was a man of sorrows. Brothers and sisters, in the Gospels, the emotion most obviously seen in Jesus, most commonly seen in Jesus' life is one of compassion. Constantly he's seeing and having compassion. There's a theologian named B.B. Warfield who wrote an excellent article. It's free online called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in there he says this, The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus, I love this, whose whole life was a mission of mercy, is no doubt compassion. And he says, in point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. 
brothers and sisters, I want that to sink deeply into your heart this morning. Like, I want it to correct any notions of Jesus as being harsh and cold. I want your own hearts to be warmed by the fact that His heart burned and broke with compassion for the undeserving. This is Jesus' heart that His whole life was a mission of mercy. That Jesus didn't just travel the 17 miles and 3,000 foot descent down from Jerusalem to Jericho, but Jesus came down the impassable distance from heaven to earth, moved with compassion. For what reason? To move into your neighborhood, to take on your flesh, to know all of the infirmities of what it's like to be a human. This is why Jesus did this. And so, listen. Jesus saw our need, and rather than stepping aside, he stepped near. He stepped across the chasm between heaven and earth to step near. And when Jesus moves towards us, it's important to know he's not put off. He doesn't step away from your suffering or your sorrow. In fact, his heart wells up with compassion towards you. Not even your sin can get him to step aside. In fact, it's the thing that moved him in compassion, in mercy, to take on your very flesh and to take on the cross. You see, because unlike the Levite or the priest, every time Jesus encounters uncleanness, his purity prevails. Unlike the Levite and the priest, every time Jesus meets death, his life wins. Unlike the Levite and the priest, his sacrificial mercy overcomes overcomes ritual purity. Instead of being contaminated by touching a corpse, His power reverses uncleanness. Jesus has a contagious holiness. See, the only thing that moves Jesus to pass by, the only thing that would get Him to step aside is your sense of adequacy. Like, if you think you got it, your self-sufficiency... If you're fine on your own, he respects that. He'll give you the distance that you demand. But brothers and sisters, this morning, if you feel your need for him, if you find yourself weak and wounded and in need of mercy, if you are here and and you find yourself in that place, it's his very work in your life in this moment. To those of you who are cynical and skeptical, do you feel your need for Jesus this morning? To those of you who've been long-time followers of Jesus and maybe your heart has grown cold, do you feel your need for Jesus this very morning? To those of you who are weak and wayward or lonely or lazy, do you feel your need for Jesus this morning? He's drawn to you if you would just feel your need for Him. Come, let Him bind up your wounds. Let Him bind up your broken heart. On the cross, Jesus makes your problems his problem. This is what the cross is about. He was wounded for our tribalism, our cold-heartedness, our unwillingness to see clearly, feel deeply, and give freely. Let him pour on you the wine of his blood. Let him pour out the anointing oil of his Holy Spirit. Let him, give, let him be for you the beast of burden who bears you upon himself so you don't have to walk on your own anymore. Let Jesus take responsibility for all your sin, all your suffering, all your sorrows. Let Him take care of your wounds. 
The wounds that have happened because of your own sin, but also the wounds that have happened because of the ways others have sinned against you. Let Him meet you there because you can only love your neighbor like Jesus when you've been loved as a neighbor of Jesus. To be His neighbor is to be near and with need. And He's here, present this very moment. And so, Jesus alone is the only one who sees clearly, feels deeply, and gives freely. And until we receive that from Him, brothers and sisters, we cannot go and do likewise. But if we do, that's our call. Now as we close, um, I want to I look at one more part of the text. If Jesus is the Good Samaritan, I'm arguing every one of us is the wounded man on the side of the road left half dead. But the church, the outpouring, New City where I pastor, the church, Jesus' people, all of us together are the in. And we've got a calling to be the innkeeper. This is what I want you to see. Why didn't the story end after verse 34? Like, why go into this whole thing about the inn and the innkeeper? Because I think what Jesus is calling us to be is we as the church are the inn and the innkeeper. The place where the wounded and the weary and the weak and those who are even wicked can come and be healed and nurtured back to life. The Good Samaritan actually invites the innkeeper to be a participant in his act of mercy. That's your calling, the outpouring. This is what, what God is calling you. Jesus is inviting you into this. He's entrusted the weak and the wounded to you to steward his resources and care for those people. So Jesus has given this gift and responsibility to the church to continue his acts of mercy in the world. This is why one of your other values is extravagantly generous. That God spared no expense when He sent His Son to pay for our sin debt with His life. Therefore, we give extravagantly because God gave extravagantly to us. We give not so that we can build things and buy stuff. We give because it is the right response to an extravagantly generous God. Our generosity and stewardship is a great opportunity to manage God's resources around the priorities of the kingdom. When we are extravagantly generous, we are participating in the revolution God initiated to change the world. I love those words from your own values. You get this. This is part of your DNA. The outpouring is a place of extravagant generosity. A place for the undeserving. A place where people can come and be met in their need. This has always marked the followers of Jesus. Timothy Keller, in a, in, a, in a sermon once, talked about how in the first century there was, a, there was a letter that was written. And in that letter, the author talked about the difference between early Christians and those who worshipped the Roman gods, how, how they were different. And this is what he said. We share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. In other words, the early Christians, this is important, the pagans were promiscuous with their body, but stingy with their money. Whereas the early Christians were stingy with their body and promiscuous with their money. A promiscuous generosity is what you're called to this morning. Jesus is an irrepressibly generous giver. And in Jesus, God himself has moved into the neighborhood so that he could be a good neighbor to us. Let the outpouring be a place where the mercy that Jesus began at his own expense continues at your expense. This is Generosity Sunday. This is Generosity Sunday, which means give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. That's the invitation this morning. 
And so listen, when Jesus comes back, when he returns, verse 35 says that as we spend ourselves for our neighbors here in Orlando, he will repay us when, we, when he returns. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you.